Senator, I think the, the, the first point that needs to be made is to recognize that the rules of the NCAA are made by the schools themselves coming together through a, 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 a legislative process that is not that dissimilar from a congressional process. The members meet on a quarterly basis on a multi-day period of time. Uh, they, they have a regular legislative cycle and they are in the midst of that cycle right now. The working groups that have been established by the Board of Governors representing students and coaches and athletic directors and uh, faculty members is, is meeting as we speak. They will be reporting back in April to the Board of Governors with the expectation that full legislation will be drafted and then crafted and then passed to come into effect in January of 2021 at our national convention of that year. Throughout that process, they have been working to try to winnow down uh, the, the general ideas around what is and is not permissible, what could or could not be consistent with intercollegiate athletics, and that's a work in progress, and we'll know a lot more about that as they bring out their findings in April. It's become surprisingly apparent to me since assuming the position of NCAA president last January that there's a confusion in the public and media with regard to what the NCAA is, where its role as national office ends, and where the role of the NCAA as a membership association begins. With every new issue that emerges in the media, there's the expectation that the national office and I, as president, should exert authority to set things right. In fact, the national office and the NCAA president have no authority other than that explicitly granted by the more than 1,000 member colleges and universities. This is a critical point. The NCA is not an all-powerful presence, and the NCA president is not the omnipotent czar of college sports. Rather, the NCA is an association made up of universities and colleges that acts only after considerable deliberation, reflects the majority will of the membership, and authorizes the national office to execute its decisions. Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. And I also have been writing in a blog, and I've been doing that for about almost two and a half years now. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. Today is Saturday. June 19th. Yesterday afternoon, Friday, June 18th, the NCAA president, Mark Emmert, sent a letter to all 1,100 NCAA member institutions across all three divisions, telling them that they better get their stuff together on name, image, and likeness. And if they didn't do it coming up on this July 1st deadline, then he was going to step in and take action himself to impose temporary name, image, and likeness compensation rules. This letter, this single letter, and it's a short letter, it's one page, and I'm going to go through it in detail here in just a second. But it really summarizes Mark Emmert's failure of leadership from the very beginning of his tenure in 2010 and his uncanny mismanagement of the entire name, image, and likeness debate. 
and all of the issues that have been swirling around it that he didn't want to talk about, like the NCAA stealth campaign in the United States Senate to achieve absolute antitrust immunity, federal preemption of all state nil laws, and a provision that would prevent NCAA athletes from being deemed employees of their universities. And those two campaigns, this dishonest campaign in the media and for public consumption that the NCAA was serious about name, image, and likeness rules, and then this stealth campaign that was designed to make it impossible for those rules to be offered to athletes, has just come to a head because of gross mismanagement and nearly 16 years of profound dishonesty on the whole issue of name, image, and likeness. And I don't know who specifically these letters were directed to. It says colleagues. I don't know if it went to the university presidents or to the faculty athletic representatives at the member institutions, but you have to wonder what the recipients of this letter thought when they first read it. And you would hope that there would be outrage coming from the member institutions over the sheer dishonesty and arrogance of this letter. So I'm just going to go through it real quick, and I'm going to bookmark a couple of the themes that are present here, and then also some things that are left out that are just stunning omissions. So Emmert says, I'm writing to update you on the status of the association's efforts on name, image, and likeness. And remember, this letter is dated June 18th, 2021, the day after the NCAA has just gotten beaten down by real athletes who finally, for the first time since the beginning of this congressional campaign in February of 2020, had the ability and the opportunity to tell their stories. And the stories were not good news for the NCAA and the big-time college sports industry. And that hearing last Thursday was done on the fly and only after a hearing the week before on June 9th where it looked like the NCAA was getting its way with the Commerce Committee, out of which any name, image, and likeness legislation would originate. And they had agreement or portrayed that there was agreement on one issue, and that was the preemption of state laws. And they were headed towards an emergency bill that they thought they could uh, get approval on that would have at least temporarily iced all of these state laws and prevented them from going into effect on July 1st. And that just unraveled. It just completely unraveled. And I discussed this in detail in the last two episodes So if you want to know what happened at the June 9th hearing and then the hearing just last Thursday, check out episodes 26 and 27. But this letter goes on to say, Since October 2019, the membership in all three divisions has been working diligently to create new rules to allow student-athletes to be compensated for nil activities while preserving the critical elements of college athletics. Since that time, many states have enacted nil legislation and 10 state laws can take effect this July. It is therefore essential we now enact rules before the end of the month. 12 days before this July 1st deadline, Mark Emmert's finally saying, we're going to enact voluntary rules 
on name, image, and likeness, the very same voluntary rules-making process that has taken, really, if you look at it honestly, 16 years. And since the NCAA's formation of the working group in May of 2019, the NCAA has been slow-walking this issue while it has, behind the scenes, been lobbying Congress and federal courts for absolute federal protections and, and immunities that would have given them the prerogative to do nothing on nil. So now they're running out of options and all of a sudden, after all of this time, 12 days before these state laws go into effect, Mark Emmert says it is therefore essential we now enact rules before the end of the month. Just stunning. Then he says, these updated rules are needed to minimize conflicts among athletes' nil opportunities across all the states and to reinforce our commitment to the principles of college athletics. There, there it is. So in the first paragraph, you have, we can only do this while preserving the critical elements of college athletics. Second paragraph, we can only do this if we reinforce our commitment to the principles of college athletics. What do these phrases mean? And there's one in the remaining two paragraphs as well. What that means is that we will provide nil compensation only within the confines of NCAA principles like amateurism, like the collegiate model, like the student-athlete, that prohibit nil compensation. And this is exactly what Condoleezza Rice was talking about in 2018 when the Commission on College Basketball discussed and then deferred talking about name, image, and likeness. And she said these rules are incomprehensible, the NCAA rules are incomprehensible, and no rational person could make heads or tails of them. And that the provision of any meaningful name, image, and likeness compensation within the confines of the collegiate model didn't make any sense. She says, I don't know how you do it. And that is the obvious response by an intelligent person who has been tasked to look at these issues. And you come away from the NCAA's position, the NCAA's existing rules, and then their claimed commitment to name, image, and likeness compensation, but only within the confines of principles that prohibit compensation. And you just throw up your hands and say, what is going on here? And this is exactly what Condoleezza Rice was talking about. So Emmert goes on to say, similarly, we have collectively made a promise to Congress, to our campuses, and most importantly, to our student athletes that we would do so. Yeah, a promise that you just walked all over and had no intention of making good on if you had gotten what you wanted from Congress or from the U.S. Supreme Court. And we still don't know, as of today, how Austin is going to be resolved and whether the NCAA will get absolute antitrust immunity. So Emmert says, certainly we will continue to work with Congress to encourage them to create a single national law around nil. But this will not happen by July. But Emmert doesn't say why. He doesn't talk at all about this last-ditch attempt in the Senate Commerce Committee through these hearings on June 9th and then June 17th. It just blew up in their face. Nor does it relieve us of the need for NCAA rules changes. By July, all of our athletes should be provided nil opportunities regardless of what state they happen to live in. Our current rules completely prohibit nil activities and therefore are in conflict with state nil laws. 
Schools and athletes following the nil provision of their state laws should not be concerned about eligibility rules, nor should student-athletes in states without nil laws be deprived of the opportunity to engage in appropriate nil activities. We must not allow such obvious inequity to occur. We need to pass new rules. Immediately, immediately. Somebody do something immediately. I just want to say a couple of things about that paragraph. So Emmert throws in appropriate nil activities. It's that same, we're going to do this, but only within the confines of principles that prohibit what we want to do. But there's this uh, sentence here. Schools and athletes following the nil provisions of their state laws should not be concerned about eligibility issues. What does that mean? They shouldn't be concerned about the NCAA coming down and saying this law is inconsistent with NCAA rules and we're declaring any athlete who receives nil benefits under these laws ineligible. And this is a bogus concern because all of these state name, image, and likeness laws explicitly say that an athlete exploiting his or her nil compensation opportunities in accordance with the provisions of the state law cannot be punished by a rulemaking governing authority like the NCAA. But the reason this is important and why Emmert included it is, it is that this is exactly the manufactured concern that the Florida Senate ginned up just a couple of months ago in their effort to delay the Florida name, image, and likeness law to 2022, when it was clear to NCAA insiders and their lawyers and their lobbyists and states like Florida who have been in bed with the NCAA in the Power Five in trying to push a federal law, when it was clear that that strategy was falling apart, the Florida legislature tacked on this stealth and dishonest amendment to a charter school bill, a piece of legislation that had nothing to do with higher education, had nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. This tack on was going to delay the effective date of the Florida nil law to 2022. And there was an immediate outcry once this made the public arena. And the state senator in Florida who introduced that amendment, started backpedaling like crazy. The state legislature wound up pulling that amendment so the 2021 date would remain intact, so the bill would go into effect on July 1st, uh, 2021. And this state senator offered as a justification for that amendment that he was concerned about the eligibility implications if the Florida law went into effect. What if the NCAA came in and started declaring all these Florida athletes ineligible? Wouldn't that be a terrible thing for Florida athletes? And that was just a ruse because, as I mentioned before, the Florida law itself doesn't permit the NCAA to take any action against an athlete who's acting in compliance with the Florida nil law. This tells me what I suspected all along when I first heard that story about the delay in the Florida nil law, and that is that the NCAA and the state of Florida have been in lockstep in their strategies to try to achieve for the NCAA and Power Five absolute iron throne protections and immunities that would make the provision of name, image, and likeness laws impossible. And then Emmert goes on to say, and again, I shouldn't be surprised by anything that comes out of uh, Indianapolis or from Mark Emmert or from uh, some of their front people, but this one just uh, really is a piece of work. So Emmert says, 
If, however, NCAA rules changes are not in place by July, please know that I will work with our governance bodies to develop temporary policies that assure student-athletes that they will not become trapped in such circumstances and that all will have nil opportunities. I have directed my staff to create proposals to this end. We will provide more details next week as this approach is reviewed by the NCAA Board of Governors and the divisional governance bodies. This is an important moment for college sports and particularly for our athletes. We must act to ensure that fair opportunities consistent with our values are provided to all student athletes. Sincerely, Mark Emmert, NCAA President. So I, I want to talk about some of the issues that Emmert's letter raises, and, and they are many, and they are important. So I want to start with this notion that Emmert believes that he has the authority within the NCAA governance structure to step in and unilaterally act as a dictator to tell the entire NCAA membership what they will do on name, image, and likeness. And that is just, again, it's hard to put into words how Mark Emmert can say that given the authority that his office is actually granted under NCAA governance regulations and the constitution of the NCAA. And also within the context of the statements that he has made time and time again, that he is nothing more than a conduit for the will of the membership and the will of the people, that he has no independent authority, that there is nothing in the NCAA governance process, either in law or in practice, that gives him the authority to act in the way he claims he's going to act in this June 18th, 2021 letter. And when you go back and you look at the comments that Emmert has made in in the opening montage, I use a couple of Emmert's comments and then also a comment from Miles Brand who is saying the same thing. And basically Emmert is repeating Brand's admonition to Congress that the NCAA president is not the omnipotent czar of college sports. And the buck doesn't stop with the NCAA president. The buck stops with the governing boards and the university presidents. That's the message. And that was the purpose of this whole movement towards presidential control, university presidential control at the institutional level for the governance and conduct and responsibility for intercollegiate athletics. And it's just stunning to me that Mark Emmert would just toss that to the side and say he and his staff can unilaterally dictate to the entire membership what they're going to do on name, image, and likeness. And this is just reminiscent to me of former Secretary of State Al Haig's claims in 1981 that he was in charge after President Reagan, Ronald Reagan, who had only been in office about 70 days, was shot by John Hinckley outside the Washington Hilton in D.C. And his vice president, George H.W. Bush, Bush 1, was on a plane over Texas and couldn't be uh, reached for some reason. There were problems with the communication system. So Alexander Haig came out and made a public statement while the entire world was on 
pins and needles. And he said, constitutionally, gentlemen, you have the president, the vice president, and the secretary of state in that order. And should the president decide he wants to transfer the helm to the vice president, he will do so. But what Haig was saying is the president's incapacitated. The vice president uh, is incommunicado. So I'm in charge. But he apparently forgot that before the Secretary of State in that line of secession is the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate. It was just one of these moments where you say, oh, my God, I can't believe this is happening. But Al Haig had an ego the size of Texas, and he shares that in common with Mark Emmert. So... In the context of Mark Emmert's Al Haig moment, I want to make a couple of observations. The first one is that the NCAA president is not elected by the membership. He has actually no direct relationship to the membership or responsibility to the membership. And these comments that Mark Emmert has made that echo Miles Brand's comments that the NCAA president is misunderstood, people don't understand that it has no independent power, have been used as a way to deflect responsibility from what I believe are true powers. They're not express powers, but they're powers that have been built into this dysfunctional detente in pursuing the commercial interests of the Power Five conferences and the NCAA national office's need for the March Madness money. And I talked about that at some length in episode five, titled The NCAA's Omnipotent Czar. And that episode followed an episode on uh, presidential leadership. And as Mark Emmert testified to the Senate Commerce Committee in 2014, again, as a way to deflect responsibility, he says that he is hired by the NCAA Board of Governors and he reports only to the NCAA Board of Governors. So I would challenge Mark Emmert or the NCAA Board of Governors to point to any provision in the NCAA Constitution or bylaws that allows Mark Emmert to assume dictatorial powers within the NCAA and direct the member institutions to a particular course of conduct. And in the absence of following that directive, then he will assume powers to legislate. And so in this sense, Emmert's acting as both the executive branch and the legislative branch, and he's doing it outside of any authority that he's been explicitly granted under the NCAA Constitution. And there was zero pushback to that. There were some articles that got pumped into the media right after Emmert's letter was made public. It wasn't, really wasn't made public. It doesn't appear on the NCAA website. And some reporters claimed to have had access to it. It began with an Associated Press story with no individual attribution. Again, this invisible media presence where it just happens to get access to this information from the NCAA and publishes it in a way that I think is friendly to the NCAA. And that was true with this initial Associated Press story on Friday afternoon. And the other thing that's important to understand about Emmert's assertion of this dictatorial control is that throughout the name, image, and likeness, quote-unquote, compensation debate, the NCAA has been very clear, the NCAA national office, and Mark Emmert specifically, have been very clear 
that this is a process that is driven by the NCAA Board of Governors in determining what the contours of any nil compensation might be, and then the ultimate legislation, the ultimate decision of what those compensation opportunities might look like is done at the divisional level. So the divisions were directed. Mark Emmert wasn't directed. The divisions were directed to come up with nil legislation that could be considered by November of 2020 with a view towards having it enacted in January of 2021. And really, the only division that's relevant in this entire discussion is Division One because that's where the money is. And those are the interests that the NCAA cares most about. So the Division One council, this legislative council that uh, is responsible for uh, drafting legislation, put together a proposal that's been really a, a functioning document since September of 2020. So that is, what, 10 months ago? For 10 months, there's been this piece of proposed legislation that the NCAA could have acted on that it has done nothing with. And the other thing that's just stunning about Emmert's letter is that he describes in general contours the process on nil, but he says absolutely nothing about what happened in January of 2021. So as we're heading up on this self-imposed deadline that the NCAA itself put in place and the Board of Governors put in place and the Name, Image, and Likeness Working Group, or actually the Federal and State Legislation Working Group, put into place for the implementation of name, image, and likeness compensation rules changes, the letter says absolutely nothing about the fact that it was Mark Emmert and the NCAA Board of Governors and allegedly the divisions that pulled the plug on name, image, and likeness rules implementation in the first week of January of 2021. And I'm going to talk about that in a little more detail here in a second. But the absence of name, image, and likeness voluntary rules changes is not the fault of the divisions or their legislative teams or their governance boards. It is the direct result of Mark Emmert telling the divisions to stand down the first week of January 2021. And so I want to talk a little bit about the true timeline of this entire nil debate. Add what I think is an important overlay to the timeline. And that is that every move that the NCAA has made with respect to voluntary name, image, and likeness rules changes has been subordinated to its campaigns in federal courts and Congress to eliminate external regulators and snuff out in one fell swoop the athletes' rights movement altogether. So the NCAA claims to have been diligently working on voluntary nil rules changes since May 14th of 2019. Emmert says October 2019 is the date when they were really pushing for name, image, and likeness compensation. But that initiative really started on May 14th, 2019 with the formation of this working group, the Board of Governors uh, Working Group on Federal and State Legislation. And I've discussed that in some detail in prior episodes. But using 2019 as the beginning of this discussion about name, image, and likeness and the concerns that were raised about the unfairness of the restrictive rules on name, image, and likeness really doesn't tell the whole story. Because in reality, the National Collegiate Athletic Association 
has been deliberating, at least internally, about name, image, and likeness compensation since 2005. That was 16 years ago. And going back into that time frame, you see through internal NCAA memoranda that were produced in the O'Bannon litigation uh, that spanned 2009 to 2016 on the substantive litigation and then into 2018 on the attorney's fees litigation. But remember, that was a name, image, and likeness case. And the athletes were challenging under federal antitrust laws the NCAA's compensation limits on name, image, and likeness. And the origin, kind of the flashpoint event, that spurred that lawsuit was the NCAA's contract with EA Sports, and this is a video game company, to allow EA Sports to use the name, image, and likeness of NCAA players in video games and to make tons of money off of it. And the NCAA sold those rights and they got paid a ton of money. And the athletes didn't get a dime. So going back to 2005, when this EA deal was being discussed behind closed doors in the NCAA, and I'm pulling out here, see, I'm going into my O'Bannon archives, and in Discovery, the athletes' attorneys got hold of some email exchanges that date back to, let's see, April 2005 is the earliest email that I saw, and going back through these records. But there were discussions about the consequences of this deal. And remember, in this video series, they were using identifying features of the athletes. And let's see, in one email, and this is from a gentleman named Bo Karen to Kevin Lennon. And Lennon is still with the NCAA. He's a high-level vice president. He's making, I don't know, five dollars $600,000 per the NCAA's Form 990 tax disclosures. And he t- has testified as a key witness, both in O'Bannon and in Austin. So he's one of these guys that NCAA puts on the stand to defend its compensation limits and the righteousness of its uh, amateur mission. But he knew in 2005, that there were problems with the NCAA's exploitation of the athletes' name, image, and likeness rights. And so Karen says in this email, let's see, since our current rules interpretations only preclude the actual use of the student-athlete's name, picture, or physical likeness in commercial promotions activities, these computerized video games are basically allowed to do what they are doing. The jersey number, along with the position and vital statistics, is clearly an attempt to have the public make the association with the current student-athlete, and it appears to be working. The Best Damn Sports Show was aired several weeks ago and had Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush acknowledging that they were in the video game. And he says, the biggest concern I have is that such a position really does allow for the maximum commercial exploitation of the student-athletes. And if that occurs, will it be long before we can defend not giving them, the student-athletes, a piece of the profits? And that's in 2005, four years before the O'Bannon suit was filed. And then there's an email. Let's see, this is April 2005. This is from Miles Brand, the NCAA president, to an NCAA exec, Greg Shaheen, who I think was focused on the basketball side, if I recall correctly. But uh, Brand says, Greg, 
anything additional come out during the remainder of the discussions with the EA crowd? Given what I heard, it seems the best approach is to put together a group of presidents and perhaps a commissioner and an AD or two as a kind of focus group to explore whether we can go forward in some way to provide names and likenesses to EA Sports. That's what he was talking about there. We can ameliorate some concerns by dedicating proceeds to a student-oriented fund such as the Opportunity Fund. We can take care of the legal issues through an expanded waiver. However, it is far from certain that the presidents will agree to providing names and likenesses in video games. They may decide to leave the money on the table. The reason is that it may seem as the beginning of the slide towards professionalizing student-athletes. The demand for compensation for the reproduction of images as well as the increased push for endorsements and then hiring agents by both players and their attorneys may well prove irresistible. At least that may be the argument that dissuades the presidents from moving in this direction. We will not, of course, know the answer without going through the exercise of consulting with the presidents and others. That's just a stunning memo on so many counts because Miles Brand, again, in that 2001 speech before the National Press Club that I talked about, he was saying this is exactly what the NCAA shouldn't be doing. They shouldn't be uh, exploiting these athletes. They shouldn't be forcing them to act as human billboards. There should be less focus on maximizing revenue. And this just turns that upside down. It's really an insight into this transformation of Miles Brand between 2001 and 2009 when he passed away. But, and he was still the NCAA president in 2009. But he says, basically, this is obviously going to cause problems. It's unfair. And maybe we can address some of these concerns by taking some proceeds to put into a student-oriented fund, right? There have been some discussions along those lines in connection with the Athletes' Bill of Rights that Richard Blumenthal and Cory Booker have proposed. But that's a non-starter in 2021 and 2020 and 2021 with the United States Senate, the Republican senators who are carrying the NCAA's water. There's no recognition of the unfairness of the NCAA's unilateral exploitation of athletes' name, image, and likeness. And then in this second paragraph, this is important because he says, look, the presidents might not be on board with this because it really is a bad look if you're trying to defend amateurism-based compensation limits. And he says, they may decide to leave the money on the table, but guess what? They didn't. They took the money, as the presidents always do. This notion that the presidents are the firewall between the NCAA national office's greed and the Power Five greed and these lofty principles of amateurism and the collegiate model and the student-athlete is a joke because the presidents are in on the scam. And they're demanding it now in 2020, 2021. And Rebecca Blank, the chancellor of Wisconsin-Madison, is the perfect example because she's making those very same arguments in the United States Senate as she, and in her testimony in the Austin case. It's just, you can't make this stuff up. But this is the backdrop for the NCAA in 2021 saying, now it's an emergency. We have to act now. And we've been trying to do this for a long, long time. No. They haven't been trying to do it for a long time. They've been trying to prevent it for a long time. And a long time means 2005. And remember that in O'Bannon, this suit that spanned really almost a decade, the NCAA spent 
$500 million fighting to the death to make sure that athletes did not receive a penny of name, image, and likeness compensation. And all that money, all those legal fees, all those expenses were funded by the labors of elite Division I men's basketball players. And a Division I basketball has the highest concentration of African-American athletes in any sport in any NCAA division. So on the backside of the NCAA's militant opposition to name, image, and likeness compensation as it played out in the O'Bannon case, we bleed into this 2019 period where you started to have some external regulators in Congress putting a little heat on the NCAA, and then there was discussion about the California Fair Pay-to-Play Act. So all these things are coming together, and that's when the NCAA forms this working group that was trying to decide whether to continue its opposition to name, image, and likeness or try to do something at the voluntary rules-making level to ease the restrictions on nil compensation. But that entire process, as I've said, was nothing more than a ruse to buy time for the NCAA to get what it wanted from the Senate and to let this Austin case play out in the federal courts and and ultimately the U.S. Supreme Court, in which the NCAA was trying to get complete antitrust immunity. And so really what the NCAA was doing was they went into the four corners. And if you're not from North Carolina and not a huge basketball fan, you may not know what the four corners is, but it is a delay offense invented in the 1950s by a basketball coach named John McLendon, who was the head coach at what is now North Carolina Central University in Durham. And that is an HBCU. And Dean Smith, the legendary coach at uh, UNC, took that offense and made it a central part of his playbook. And Smith was just a brilliant tactician. And he perfected that offense and used it for multiple purposes, uh, sometimes to try to shorten a game where he thought the other team might have an advantage, but most often to ice a game when UNC had a lead. And that was often the case (laughs) down the stretch there because his teams were just phenomenal. And he's a Hall of Fame coach and he's a Mount Rushmore kind of coach. But his four corners offense really had the wind taken out of it when uh, the NCAA in the mid-1980s started to go with this fundamental rules changes and it introduced a shot clock. So that really neutralized a lot of the purposes for the four corners offense. But that phrase, the four corners, has now become a euphemism for delay tactics. And when somebody says, particularly in North Carolina, where that term still has relevance, yeah, he's in the four corners. It means he's trying to avoid something that isn't going to be good. And that's exactly what the NCAA did with the four corners in this nil debate, in this period between 2019 and really just this past week. And their hope was that by creating this kind of state of inertia, this delay inertia, and then working behind the scenes to get what they wanted from the Senate and from the United States Supreme Court in Austin, that before they had to commit to a single specific nil compensation voluntary rules change, they would have the absolute authority to do nothing on nil. And that strategy fell apart and it 
began to unravel in earnest after the November elections when there was uncertainty as to whether or not the NCAA was going to be able to maintain its partisan advantage in a Republican-controlled Senate because the Georgia special elections were looming. And so you had all this panic and you had the NCAA trying to get something pushed through the Senate and they dallied around and didn't have their ducks in a row. And I think this speaks to just a failure of leadership because ultimately the NCAA and the Power Five were listening to lawyers and lobbyists. The NCAA was not running college sports. Lawyers and lobbyists inside the Beltway were determining the future of college sports and every important decision that was made throughout that period when the NCAA was in the four corners. So while the NCAA was in the four corners on voluntary rulemaking, You had also, in this 2020 period, the Power Five really starting to assert their interests. And on May 23rd, 2020, they wrote a letter both to the House leaders and the Senate leaders saying, we have to do something immediately on nil. We need these protections immediately because we really want to provide nil benefits. But boy, we can't do it unless we get all these protections and immunities at the federal level. And the Power Five really charted somewhat of a different course than the NCAA because the NCAA was tied to this January 2021 deadline and they were operating along that timeline. But the Power Five were saying, no, we need to speed this thing up. And I think they saw that there was some potential. It was it seemed remote at the time, but some potential that they weren't going to have their political advantage in the Senate or, or in the White House because Trump and Pence and Pence is from Indiana, the hotbed of NCAA amateurism in the home of the NCAA national office and the host to the Final Four tournament almost every five years. I think that was part of the deal when the NCAA moved from Kansas to Indianapolis back in 1998. But So you had the support of the White House, and then you had a Republican Senate that was very friendly to NCAA interests. And that advantage was in the balance coming up on the November election. So the Power Five really wanted to press the gas, and nothing got done. And some of that, I think, was just this leadership vacuum that existed at the NCAA national office. And the Power Five thought Emmert was going to be taking the lead. And they were happy to let him take the lead all along when the NCAA is paying all the bills for this lobbying and the litigation strategy. The Power Five football interests aren't sharing any of their money for those purposes. And then all of a sudden they pressed the panic button. It's like something could change here on the political landscape and we need to get this thing done. So that confusion and the lack of leadership, both from Mark Emmert and the national office and also from the Power Five conference commissioners, really delayed their push in the Senate. And then all of a sudden, the special elections come up and on January 5th, everything changed. Because both the Georgia seats went to the Democrats. You had a evenly split Senate and the Democrats controlled because Kamala Harris, as the vice president, had the tie-breaking vote. And as I mentioned in the last episode. So all of a sudden, the NCAA, overnight, literally overnight, pulls out of its voluntary rules making and pulls out of Congress. And what happened in the first two weeks of January of 2021 was a stunning abdication of leadership and tacit 
acknowledgement that the NCAA never intended to do anything on voluntary name, image, and likeness rules changes. So you had the Division I Council with this piece of legislation that's been sitting around since October. They're supposed to roll it out at the NCAA January 2021 meeting, which started the week of January 11th. And then January 5th, the NCAA loses its political advantage. And the other thing that's important about that time frame is that in that intervening period, in December of 2020, the United States Supreme Court has accepted the Austin case. So the NCAA has this Austin opportunity to get total antitrust immunity, one of the things they were seeking in Congress. And now that their congressional options seem to be shrinking rapidly with the loss of control of the Senate, the Republican-controlled Senate, all of a sudden, the NCAA has to completely retool its strategy, and so does the Power Five. And so all of a sudden, the day after the Georgia special elections, the NCAA starts laying the foundation for a manufactured reason to pull out of voluntary rules making, which they've been promising the athletes and the public and Congress and anybody who would listen since 2019. So with the help of a friendly media and the USA Today sports writers, I think, get the, the assist on this one, they put out into the public domain on January 8th and January 9th this alleged tete-a-tete between Mark Emmert and Makan Del Harim, who I've mentioned in prior episodes, but he was head of the antitrust division in the Justice Department under the Trump administration. And all of a sudden, there are these really confusing stories that don't make a lot of sense. And he said, there's some serious antitrust implications here, and we don't want you to implement those rules until those have been resolved, and we need to figure all this stuff out. And the question is, where the hell has this been? Because in this USA Today article, there was a suggestion that these discussions have been going on for a long time. And if the United States Justice Department has been in discussions with the NCAA about the antitrust implications of its voluntary rules-making, how is that not a matter of public concern, and how does that not make it into the media? Before the first week of January of 2021, on the eve of the NCAA's promise to make good on its promises of nil-friendly legislation, voluntary rules changes. There's just no answer there. And the other thing that was really interesting about this manufactured excuse is that there was never any explanation of what the specific antitrust concerns were. What were they? What elements of this plan? A plan that the NCAA had not made public, by the way. So this proposed legislation by the Division I Council was only accessible to NCAA insiders. I, I got a copy of it through a source, and so I was familiar with what it didn't do, and it was really smoke and mirrors. And what Emmert's going to propose now is going to be smoke and mirrors. But there was never any discussion about what specifically in that legislative proposal, that NCAA legislative proposal, was objectionable on antitrust grounds. And... The story broke on a Friday. So January 8th was a Friday. January 9th was a Saturday. And so there were these articles, mostly in USA Today. There were some in the New York Times, this guy named Alan Blender, who I've talked about in prior episodes. But it was clear to me that they were fronting the NCAA's interests here. And this was just a piece of fiction that was some way that the NCAA could save face and buy more time. And then the other thing that's interesting to note is that the United States Justice Department, through the Solicitor General, can always intervene in any litigation in which it believes that the United States of America has a compelling interest, and they do it all the time. So if there were all these antitrust concerns about the NCAA's approach, and if 
any of them could have been compromised by the position that the NCAA was taking in the Austin suit, which was that it was immune from antitrust liability. Why didn't Makan Del Harim insist that the United States of America intervene in the Austin suit? He didn't do it. Oh, and by the way, Makan Del Harim, before he went into the Trump administration in 2017, had spent 12 years working for Brownstein Hyatt as a lobbyist. So Delarim is working in D.C. as a lobbyist for this high-powered lobbying firm in an antitrust context. And Brownstein Hyatt is the exact same firm that since 2014 has been acting as a registered lobbyist for the National Collegiate Athletic Association. There was nothing in any of these articles in USA Today or the New York Times or any other publication that made that connection. I wrote an extensive post on that. I think it was on January 15th of 2021, and I'll I'll link to that. But when you break down the way these articles were constructed, the ostensible justifications that NCAA put out for immediately halting voluntary rules changes on name, image, and likeness, boy, it smells really bad. It just smells really bad. And then the Biden administration takes over in, what, January 21st of 2021. And remember, the U.S. Supreme Court has set oral argument for March 31st. So we're only talking about two months now between the Biden administration taking over and this argument in the U.S. Supreme Court. And guess what happens? The United States of America intervenes in the Austin suit at the Supreme Court level to make the case that the NCAA should not be entitled to absolute antitrust immunity. And McCon Del Harim and the United States government and the Trump administration and the Trump solicitor general could have done that at any point since 2016 when Trump took over. And, he, and they didn't do it. They didn't do it. So that's just another massive red flag. And I just want to speak briefly about how the NCAA rolled out this abrupt halt on voluntary rules making, because this ties into Emmert's role in all this. And he's now saying he has these dictatorial powers and he's going to exercise them if the schools don't act immediately after all this delay. Now they get 12 days to get it right for him. Again, I don't know how you respond to that. But there were a number of these Mickey Mouse press releases issued on the NCAA website in their media center. And on Monday, January 11th of 2021, which is the day that the 2021 NCAA convention begins, and this was the convention where they were going to roll out all these name, image, and likeness voluntary rules changes. So on on January 11th, there's this a press release that says Division One Council tables proposal on name, image, likeness, and transfers. And I'll talk about the transfers when I talk about this Jerry Moran bill, but that was also a part of the legislative package. And it says the Division One Council on Monday announced it is committed to adopting new rules allowing student athletes to benefit from their name, image, and likeness and expanding opportunities for student athletes to compete immediately after transfer. But several external factors, including recent correspondence with the U.S. Department of Justice prompted members to delay voting on the proposal. Again, no discussion about what the concerns were, what the correspondence said, how they had any relationship to voluntary name, image, and likeness rules making. 
And then it says the group tabled the name, image, and likeness and transfer proposals and adopted a resolution stating it is committed to modernizing its rules. The Board of Governors directed each division to change name, image, and likeness rules by January 2021, but judicial, political, and enforcement issues and a subsequent recommendation from NCAA President Mark Emmert influenced today's decision. Divisions two and three both have name, image, and likeness proposals up for consideration during the NCAA convention this week. Emmert is presenting his recommendation to to delay a decision on both divisions. And then there's this statement that says the council remains fully committed to modernizing division one rules in ways that benefit all student athletes, according to council chair M. Grace Calhoun, athletics director at Pennsylvania. And she's a longtime NCAA insider. Unfortunately, external factors require this pause. It's just a pause. And the council will use this time to enhance the proposals. And then the NCAA board of governors and the division two councils and the division three councils all issued uh, statements saying the same thing. We have to stop. We have to stop. We have to stop. But Mark Emmert operated as this shadowy influence. And the way that those changes, those decisions to stop voluntary rulemaking were presented to the public, it was as if it was an NCAA Board of Governors directive and the divisions making decisions independent of Mark Emmert's influence. But this was Mark Emmert's show. He manufactured this absolute fraud. And The NCAA never offered any intelligent explanation about what the concerns were, why the uh, need for an immediate halt to voluntary rulemaking. Show me the letters. Show me the documents. Show us all of your communications with the Justice Department, Mr. Emmert. And he didn't do it. And the mainstream media never asked for him to do it. And by the end of the week of January 11th, It was just uh, deemed an unassailable objective truth that the NCAA had no choice but to stop its voluntary rulemaking because the United States Justice Department had told them they had to. And where's the evidence? And then we have the Biden administration, who you would think would be at least as attentive to these antitrust concerns in the context of NCAA voluntary rulemaking. They would say, look, you have to just put a permanent freeze on this until we get all these issues resolved. But apparently that didn't happen. What happened to all this pressure from the DOJ? There was zero discussion about it. And then by March and April, the NCAA is starting to talk again about renewing its voluntary rules changes. And this timeline simply doesn't add up. And the explanations that the NCAA has offered just don't add up. So all of this hand-wringing and all these false headlines and all of Mark Emmert's BS in early January of 2021 were simply indefensible and weren't supported by any concrete evidence or any explanation even as to what these antitrust concerns allegedly were. So the NCAA has gotten away with this. And again, it can't do that without a compliant media that reinforces and amplifies its propaganda. And that's exactly what happened in early January 2021. And so the NCAA completely pulls out of its voluntary rules making on nil. 
it completely pulls out of the Congress because it's lost its uh, built-in partisan advantage. And it's sitting on the sideline waiting to see what's going to happen in this Austin suit. But in this interim time, the NCAA is going back through its high-powered lobbyists to try to figure out if there's a way to get at least preemption from the Senate. And that's what they really want. And I said all along, that was the centerpiece of their three-pronged approach to the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation. And apparently that's what they did because these hearings just in June, just in the last couple of weeks, were focused exclusively on preemption. And I discussed that at length in, in my prior episodes on those two hearings. But now that the NCAA has lost any hope of getting an emergency preemption provision out of the United States Congress, only now... On June 18th, 2021, 12 days before this July 1st deadline, does Mark Emmert say, okay, now we're really serious. Now, after what, 16 years of lies and just fight to the death defense of nil compensation limits, now we're finally going to do it. And you university presidents and you, know, you folks out there in the membership, you better get on it, and you have 12 days to do it. And if you don't do it, by gum, I'm going to do it for you. If you're a university president, how do you not just go ballistic on Emmert? Because this is really an exclamation point on his arrogance, his indifference, his disconnection from the realities of the sports world as the rest of America sees it. And he's putting the blame, as he's so good at doing, on the very people he's been sandbagging. He told these people to stand down in January of 2021. Now he's saying you have 12 days to get it right. And if you don't, it's your fault. So now I just want to talk briefly about some of the other options that the NCAA I'm sure was weighing, but it's clear to me from all this that, as I said from the very beginning of my writing and my podcasting, that this campaign by the NCAA is being directed not by NCAA governance bodies, not by NCAA committees, not by university decision makers, but by the NCAA's lawyers and lobbyists. And I have no doubt that after that June 17th hearing, that was a punch in the mouth to NCAA propaganda. And it you know, went head on at the injustice and inequity in the system with a racial overlay. I have no doubt that after that hearing, the NCAA's lobbyists said, nothing's happening in the Senate right now. And you have no card to play. You, you've played them all and you've played them badly. And now you need to just go to whatever plan B is. And of course, that plan B is also influenced by what their legal options are. Because remember... Up until this June 9th hearing, just a week before last, the NCAA was not ruling out a federal lawsuit against any of these states whose nil laws will go into effect on July 1st under the Dormant Commerce Clause, where the NCAA would say that under a uniformity theory, very similar to this preemption theory that they wanted to get from the Senate, the theory is the same, that an absence of uniformity and 51 different standards creates an impermissible burden on interstate commerce. And there's precedent for that effect. There was a case out of the Ninth Circuit, I think it was in the late 1990s, it involved the NCAA. So there's some precedent for that. But you have to believe that Mark Emmert's letter, this June 18th, 21 letter, saying we have 12 days to put these into effect and it's going to happen come hell or high water, that that was influenced by the opinions of the lawyers as to the feasibility, both at the legal level, but also I think at a public relations level, 
of filing a federal lawsuit under these circumstances within the next 10 days. And it's still not impossible that the NCAA might do that. But you have to believe that based on what Emmert's letter says, that that's not on the table in this temporary period, as he defines it, however long that turns out to be. And one of the things that's important to remember, and I really haven't gotten into a detailed discussion about what a dormant commerce clause lawsuit would look like to nullify these all these state name, image, and likeness laws. But the first step in that would be an application for a temporary injunction. So the NCAA would make the case for a temporary injunction that would freeze all of these state laws while they litigated on the merits of the dormant commerce clause issues. And it's important to note, and I did a fair amount of injunctive relief litigation in uh, my private practice years, but under federal law, in order to get a temporary injunction that preserves a status quo that you want to preserve, you have to make three fundamental showings. First, and this is the most important one, this is central to any action for temporary injunctive relief, and that is that you have to show irreparable harm if the injunction is not granted. And what the NCAA would have to establish under that threshold keystone prong is that if these state laws go into effect, then their interests will forever and permanently be harmed. And that's a tough standard to make because all the skies falling arguments the NCAA has made about these state laws are purely speculative. And they haven't been made in the context of what those laws actually require and prohibit and how the nil marketplace may play out. So the NCAA has a real tough job on that. And I think they're in a tough spot here on the uh, Dormant Commerce Clause case, because if these laws go into effect and the sky doesn't fall, then in the future, the NCAA's claim that it has to put the brakes on this through a temporary restraining order and federal litigation are really undermined. The second thing that you have to show to be entitled to a temporary injunction is a likelihood of success on the merits of the case. So the NCAA would have to essentially lay out its case and show how it is likely to succeed on the merits. And that's, again, purely speculative. And it's a tough case, I think, because of some of the positions that the NCAA has taken with respect to its market practices and the differences in the market between this 1998 decision in the Ninth Circuit and the realities of the big-time college sports marketplace in 2021. And then a third important thing, if there's some uh, possibility of irreparable harm and if there's some possibility of likelihood of success on the merits, you have to weigh the comparative interests of the two parties. So the NCAA's interest in stopping valid state legislation from going into effect, and that's a big, big ask, versus the interests of the states in their self-determination, in their rights under principles of federalism, and then the rights of the athletes to be treated as free Americans. Those two interests, I think, would make for a very interesting balancing in the context of entitlement to a temporary injunction. So there's enormous risk to the NCAA at the practical evidentiary level on that threshold issue. And if they can't get a temporary order and then they have to go and just go on a slow pace litigation of the merits of the dormant commerce case, I think that's a tough, tough case or a much tougher case for the NCAA. That's what the NCAA lawyers may be telling them, that there's some substantial risks in this litigation scenario that may undermine all the 
narratives that you've painted about the horrors that will result when these state laws go into effect. And that takes me to the next thing that I want to talk about. And that is just a quick look at this Florida law and what it permits and what it prohibits. And I think that you may come to conclude, as I have, that it poses very little threat to the NCAA's interests. And that's true for all these laws that are set to go into effect, with the exception of the New Mexico law, which nobody's talking about. The New Mexico law is actually more permissive than any state law, including the California law. But nobody's talking about it. The NCAA is not screaming chicken little on the New Mexico law. Why? Because they don't give a damn what happens in New Mexico because there's not a power five product in New Mexico. And the other states whose laws go into effect on July 1st, all have one thing in common. They're all Southeastern conference states, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Florida. There's another one I, I forget. So this is a power five show. This is about protecting the pile of cash. They don't really care what's going on in New Mexico. So before I talk briefly about what's in this Florida law and how little threat it poses, I want to talk a little bit about the restrictions that have been laid out and that are included either in NCAA voluntary rulemaking in these federal laws that have been proposed and in these state laws. And there's a laundry list of restrictions that are common to many of these bills. Some contain more than others, but all of these are directed to preserving the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism, the collegiate model, and the student-athlete. That's the starting point, and this goes back to Condoleezza Rice's point. When you are building a compensation system and your fundamental framework is a principle that prohibits compensation, you've already created this Orwellian impossibility. And when you look at the restrictions that are part of this discussion and that are included to uh, one extent or another in all these name, image, and likeness laws, you begin to see the truth of Rice's observations. So let's see. The first restriction that's common and essential is that there are no direct payments from the universities to the athletes. Of all the legislation that's been presented in Congress and state legislatures, the only bill that allows direct payments is the Athletes Bill of Rights, which has a revenue sharing component. Every other bill outright prohibits direct payments from universities to the athletes themselves, which is a central component of the collegiate model and amateurism and the student athlete. So these deals can only be done with third parties who have absolutely no affiliation with the university. And universities are also prohibited from being involved in procuring these deals for athletes. So the universities are really taken completely out of this process. And then the other thing is that none of these nil contracts can conflict with existing university contracts. So if your school is a Nike school, no athlete, big time athlete, non-revenue athlete, no athlete can do a deal with Nike. And that just protects the institutional interests. And that goes to the heart of what the witnesses at that June 17th hearing were talking about, particularly Ms. Chenault and Ms. Curitan, who were saying, look, in all the decisions about athlete well-being, and in particular in this nil debate, you start first with protecting institutional interests. That's the way it works in big-time college sports. It's not what's best for the athletes. It's what satisfies 
the economic interests, the branding and image interests of the university. And once those are satisfied to the liking of the institutional stakeholder beneficiaries, only then can we start talking about athletes' rights. And then let's see, the other thing that is included in a lot of these bills is that these athletes cannot use any university intellectual property, no name, no logo, nothing that would suggest university endorsement of any deal that a student has with a third party. The other thing that these bills include, another restriction, is that no name, image, and likeness deal can be in exchange for athlete performance, ability, or notoriety. How that works, I don't know. One of the things that Dr. Rice pointed out in 2018 as an example of how untenable that restriction is that a University of Notre Dame women's basketball star named Arike Ogunbanwale, I'm just going to call her Arike for simplicity's sake, but she had just a monster Final Four in 2018, and she hit two incredible game-winning shots, both in the semifinal game and then the national championship game. And I've watched the video of those uh, shots, and it's just unbelievable. But she became an instant overnight sensation. And she was invited to participate in Dancing with the Stars. And the NCAA at the time, and since 2015, has had an off-the-books name, image, and likeness waiver program where a student could, on an individual basis, apply for a waiver of the NCAA name, image, and likeness restrictions. And if granted, they could do whatever they were going to do. So Arike applied for a waiver, and it was granted. And Rice said, how was her invitation from Dancing with the Stars not tied to her athletic ability, performance, or notoriety? It's ridiculous on its face. And this NCAA uh, waiver process was a centerpiece of the April 2020 final report. And they built a lot of their suggestions of what might be permissible around this waiver program where they've been granting nil exceptions for six years. And I'm going to talk about that when I talk about the final report in more detail. It's a fascinating. But there has never been any attempt by the NCAA, by any decision maker in Congress or in discovery in any of these antitrust suits to get those waivers and see exactly what the NCAA is already permitting with respect to, to nil. Wouldn't it seem like that would be a logical starting point? And to see what the mosaic of granted nil rights looks like to help look at what a market not just might look like in the future, but how it has operated in reality, in practice, off the books since 2015. The NCAA doesn't want us to see those documents. And in that 2020 final report, the working group in a footnote said, look, we haven't made any effort to track all these down, but there are a lot of them out there. And those documents are required to be retained by athletics directors and at the conference level. So they should be easily accessible, but the NCAA doesn't want you to see them. And then the other uh, restriction on these nil laws is that no nil deal can be used as a recruiting inducement. And And then another limitation is that all name, image, and likeness deals must be at quote-unquote, fair market value, whatever that is. And that's impossible to determine. I've talked about that too. Then almost all these bills include draconian disclosure and regulatory requirements on the athletes, on agents, on boosters, 
and third-party contractors because in this nil market, they're all presumed to be bad actors, and uh, including the athletes. Everybody's suspect. Everybody's guilty until proven innocent. And these documentary strip searches and these shakedowns are designed, I think, to deter third-party contracts. And I think they're going to have a disproportionate impact on African-American revenue-producing athletes. And that's why this whole bad actor narrative, which has been part of the NCAA's thinking since Walter Byers in the 1950s and then went on steroids in the 1980s with some of the initial athlete agent legislation, state legislation, and has just been carried forward in in so many different contexts and is now in full bloom again in this name, image and likeness market. And then let's see a couple of other things that are really important. One is that a lot of these restrictions, these bills include restrictions that limit nil activities that are done in season. Well, thinking back to that Northwestern football unionization attempt and the analysis, the factual analysis about the amount of time these athletes spend on football and big time football programs, there were only nine weeks out of a calendar year that athletes had discretionary time. So that limitation of no in-season nil activities really makes it difficult for the revenue-producing athletes to exploit their nil opportunities. And then this last thing, and this is really tricky territory, but a lot of these bills include language that would say, notwithstanding any of the rights that these athletes might have in this market, their nil use is subject to university and coach and team policies. So there could be all kinds of restrictions that could be put on nil opportunities at the institutional level, at the athletics department level, at the coach level, at the team policy level that would not be violations of the state law that through a backdoor and a massive loophole could make it very, very difficult for these athletes to have the opportunity to make money from their name image and likeness. And there's been zero conversation about that. So you have all of these restrictions. And then, only then, can athletes have the opportunity to make money from their name, image, and likeness. And and again, I've said this from the very beginning. When you look at what's left after these restrictions are all put into law, made a part of law, then there's almost nothing of meaningful value left in the name image marketplace. So let's take a look at this Florida law. So again, this came out in June of 2020, and it was always my belief, my cynical belief, that this was really a law that was put into legislation with an effective date of July 1st of 2021 for the Power Five and the NCAA to speed up the process in uh, Congress and to put some pressure on Congress. And that strategy, if, if I'm correct in that strategy, that it was never really a serious effort to give athletes name, image, and likeness benefits because they knew it would never go into effect if they got what they wanted from Congress, particularly the Senate then this strategy has backfired. Boy, has it backfired. But even this Florida law, which I I would call middle of the road with respect to all these restrictions that I just laid out, it still has substantial limitations that make it very unlikely that there's just going to be some crazy name, image, and 
uh, lightness marketplace. But again, now that this strategy has backfired, all these fears about competitive advantage, disadvantage are going to kick in and you're going to see states going crazy. Florida's doing this and Georgia's doing that and Alabama. So, you know, if Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi and Florida have these laws ready to go, there's just going to be an outcry. And all these guys who lay awake at night worrying about gaining a competitive advantage or avoiding losing one, they're just going to be in apoplexy on July 1st. That would be fun to just see that because it's so overblown. But here you go. So you have this law. So just to make clear where this law really lands, the Florida legislature and really the first operative substantive provision says, an intercollegiate athlete at a post-secondary education institution may earn compensation for the use of his or her name, image, or likeness. Such compensation must be commensurate with market value of the authorized use of the athlete's name, image, or likeness. To preserve the integrity, quality, character, and amateur nature of intercollegiate athletics and to maintain a clear separation between amateur intercollegiate athletics and professional sports, such compensation may not be provided in exchange for athletic performance or attendance at a particular institution and may only be provided by a third party unaffiliated with the intercollegiate athlete's post-secondary educational institution. Okay, so right off the bat there, you have an open endorsement of NCAA amateurism and a protection of this vague boundary between professional and college sports. You have only authorized use, and that's an open question because a lot of the specific nil issues aren't nailed down and would be left to the state board of governors and the board of education. And so you have the market value, the authorized use, and can't be used for an inducement to attend a school and can't be related to athletic performance, ability, or notoriety. So just in those, I don't know, six lines, you've just folded in a ton of restrictions that really limit the nil marketplace. And let's see, what else do they have here? Oh, it also prohibits any contracts that conflict with school contracts, another big exemption. And then you have these draconian disclosure requirements that I think really are an impediment to athletes exercising their nil compensation rights. And then you have this delegation to the Board of Governors and the Board of Education to come up with more specific rules, which then leaves open the question of how many more limitations will be put in to the bill. And then there are these requirements about athlete agents. So you have substantial requirements here that are not inconsistent at all with the NCAA's voluntary rules-making thinking and this vaporous proposal from the Division I Council that has been on the table really since September, October of 2020, in which the NCAA has taken no action on. And remember that Mark Emmert has testified to this. The the conference commissioner of the SEC, Greg Sankey, has testified to this. They both said that the Florida law posed very little threat to the NCAA's basic core principles. And how could it when the Florida law and the Florida legislature explicitly adopt the NCAA's conceptualization of amateurism? So this bill isn't going to do a whole lot for athletes. It has very little potential to cause harm to the NCAA. And that's why I think if the NCAA marches in asking for a temporary injunction to prevent this law from going into effect, they're going to have a tough time making the case for irreparable harm and uh, likelihood of success on the merits when the NCAA's own legislation is uh, drafted in a very similar way. So there's some 
practical concerns here. And again, this just ties back to the NCAA strategy with this Florida law to try to speed things up in the Senate. They didn't get what they wanted. And now they're stuck with this law and the the limitations of that law in the litigation context, if they want to try to sue the state of Florida, that's going to be an interesting case. And uh, that may be what the NCAA's lawyers are telling them, that you created this mess. This is not a good set of facts to litigate on the temporary injunction issue. And we advise against going forward with that right now. So, yeah. So, all of this is just really fascinating, and it's going to be really interesting to see in the next 12 days what happens and what the NCAA actually comes out with and who is calling the shots here. And this goes back to the circular firing squad dynamic that Condoleezza Rice talked about, also in connection with that Commission on College Basketball in 2018. And she just said, just have these people pointing the finger at each other. Nobody's assuming responsibility. And it's impossible to know who's in charge. And it's my contention, and I've been arguing this till I'm blue in the face, that nobody in the NCAA is in charge. The presidents aren't in charge. The governing boards aren't in charge. The national office isn't in charge. These decisions are being made by NCAA lawyers, NCAA lobbyists, and NCAA public relations experts who are determining the future of college sports. And that's the way this is playing out. So with that, I will close this episode out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back again for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. 